All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our exclusive virtual Q&A with Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins. Thank you, first of all, so much for doing this. It's an incredible, intimate experience we can give Tampa and Jacksonville, and we're just really lucky to have you here today. I know you're fresh off a huge double album release, so uh, we're really excited to have you, and I know uh, we've got some questions for you so for, from some big fans. So we're going to go ahead and get started. I'll unmute you guys one at a time and give you the floor, and then we'll move to the next person. Also, you should tell everyone that Jimmy's here, too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we will start with Patty, if you want to go first. So a quick question for you. So apparently you still live in the St. Pete area. Is there anything that you desperately miss about it? Um, I lived there um, about 1985, 1986. Um, and I don't really miss it. I mean, I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> Understood. My, fir my first band, um, actually, that's an interesting story, is my first band was a band called The Marked. And um, the, guy, the bass player in the band, who was also a singer and a songwriter, knew Jimmy Chamberlain, who's also obviously on this call. And that's how I ended up meeting Jimmy sort of surreptitiously through that relationship. So in a weird kind of way that my going to St. Pete and that band ended up with Jimmy being in the pumpkins about a year. Well, I guess a couple of years later. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I was just so poor. I was living on, you know, kind of like $2 a day and starving and, and it was a really bad time for me. And, you know, it wasn't like we were making any money from gigs or anything, but we would play it. Um, there was a place called act four that we played a lot in Tampa and um, we occasionally played in St. Pete. We played at the university. Is it the University of, what is it, right? What's the name of the university there? Bulls, USF. USF, yeah. I played there. I got pictures from me playing in there and stuff like that. But yeah, um, it's changed a lot too. I was down there not too long ago for a friend's wedding. Yeah. And, um, um, and I couldn't believe how much it's changed. I mean, when I was there in the 80s, it was real sleepy and not much happening. But it's gotten a lot yeah. better now. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Can I just make a comment real fast, if that's okay? Sure, yeah. Oh, she's frozen. Oh. I <laughs> love Zoom. I know. Patty, are you there? Go type it in the chat. This is good with a guitar. Oh, she's back. Sorry, we lost you for a second, Patty. That's why we couldn't oh, hear you. Um, so about 20 years ago, you were played in Ruth Eckerd. And my husband and I went out to the back because we wanted to give our, you know, you know, last look at it and everything, you know, finish out the night. There was a kid with a guitar and you walked over to him and you said, if nobody takes a picture and nobody records anything, I will do this. So you sat down on the fence post in the bath of, in the back of Ruth Eckert Hall and you just started playing real easy. That was pretty cool. Oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, again, I mean, it was like 20 years ago, but I remember yeah. he's like, Nobody's ever going to believe me. I'm such a liar in the first place. And you're like, that's yeah. probably change about yourself. So yeah, yeah. The problem is, is anytime we touch anything, somebody yeah. puts it on eBay and says it's mine or Jimmy's, and it's, we owned it. And and then you got mad fans coming back later saying I bought something I thought was yours, and now it's worthless. And yeah. so that's why something like that. No, but I appreciated that nobody recorded anything. <laughs> at all <laughs> almost no. impossible these days yeah you can't do yeah. anything without being recorded that's true that's true well thank you very much thank you pat thank you guys 
Uh, and they were our winners from 97X, but we also have Jamie here from Jacksonville. So you are up. Hi. Hi. I just want to tell you I'm a huge fan since I was a teenager, huge fan. Um, so this is exciting for me. Um, I want to know what was your favorite video to shoot throughout the entire years? Which one you had the most fun and enjoyed and look back at and say, hey, that was a really good time. Uh, Jimmy, you want to take this one first? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were all so fun to do. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to put them in order. But uh, I think the Today video was kind of fun, although it was kind of hot. I remember very hot. Um, but that was kind of fun. Remember the zero video was a lot of fun because after the video, but many of the cast members came back to the chateau uh, to a party that I had in my room. <laughs> uh, so that was pretty fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. Um, they were all kind of fun. I mean, in, in their own kind of torturous way. <laughs> uh, How about you, Billy? What's your favorite video? <laughs> I don't know. They were always so stressful for me because I was always involved in the um, in the making of the videos and the production of the videos. So by the time we got around to the shoot, I was so stressed out. And, um, you know, with all due respect to my bandmate, like not every bandmate understood every concept. So be like, what are we doing? Why do I got to wear this space suit? Like, whose idea was this? Why am I hanging upside down? <laughs> Why am I hanging upside down? Yeah, that was that was when we were doing the uh, Bullet with Butterfly Wings. Uh, when the director came over to Jimmy and said, okay, we're going to hang you upside down. <laughs> Jimmy was kind of like, why, why am I? Going okay. Because you? you're the drummer, you know? Um, um, Daredevil. Off, off the top of my head, probably the most pleasant experience was making the Tonight Tonight video because A, the band was barely in it. So our part was basically just miming the music and each one of us shot individually. So if you know anything about making videos, when you try to shoot a whole band, it's really stressful because even if maybe you're, you look good in a shot, so-and-so doesn't like the way they look in the background, so they'll kill the shot. So you're constantly arguing about what shots end up in a video. So if they shoot the band individually, then it's a lot easier to put the video together. Uh, the video took three days and our, the band's part was only about four hours out of the three days. So it was just nice to just relax and watch them shooting the video. And um, so th th there's more about the stress level is what comes to mind, um, not always the result. Awesome. Thank you, Jamie. All right. I also have uh, Jean-Pierre here. Uh, you don't have your camera on, though, so I just wanted to check you were present. Our other winner from Tampa, Jean-Pierre. I'm working on it. Oh, on. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> oh, there you are. Hey, there we go. You have a question for Jimmy and Billy? Uh, yeah, um, been a huge fan like forever, but uh, I just wanted to know what was that moment that you realized like that you had made it, but like made it as in like your universe would never ever be the same, you know, like the moment you realize like, holy shit, I'm a worldwide phenomenon, I'm going to be paparazzi and like, wow, my life is never going to be the same, amazing and bad reaction of it you know like what was that moment that you guys really knew like holy cow we've made it uh, i can't speak for jimmy but i don't think there was a moment because it was just it was so intense that and um i don't know it's like the weirder it got the more normal it got somehow mm -hmm. until it was so weird that you don't even realize how weird it was now that we look back we realize how weird it was um 
people ask me sometimes, what's the first time you recognize that you were sort of famous in the quotations? And we played Saturday Night Live in 1993. And we had, for whatever reason, we had to get on a plane to go play a gig in Houston the next day. So I remember getting off the plane in Houston and I could feel like a guy staring at me from over here. And I looked at the guy and I was like, is there a problem? And the guy was like, were you on TV last night? And it was so weird. It was like, how does this guy in Houston, <laughs> you know, that's when you, when you, and it, it, it's weird. Cause it's not the same now when you'd be on national TV uh, in the nineties, like if you walk mm-hmm. down the street the next day, tons of people would recognize you because everybody watched those shows. Yeah. Um, now we'll be on, you know, whatever. And we're, we're grateful. It's not nothing bad, but like we're on Fallon. It's not like, it's not like the same. It's not like 10 million people watching like used to watch. Um, mm-hmm. The numbers are a lot smaller because people don't watch or that they watch, they watch it on their iPad three days later or something. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't really point to any moment, you know, um, part of it is just, you got to pretend like you belong there. So even if you feel overwhelmed, which you do every time you go to start live or you're talking to some big famous reporter or, I mean, there's a clip of me from Lollapalooza from 94 and like Nightline with Ted Koppel. It's like, why the hell was I, why the hell was I in Nightline? Because they were like, right. they were, you know, it was a very serious nighttime news program. They were examining, the, you know, the, the phenomenon of grunge. So somewhere there's a clip of me backstage, like, you know, hey, you know, the kids just want to have, I don't know, this is just so silly. But like, what I'm saying is like stuff like that, you do stuff like that. And then your, your grandmother would see it or something. You're like, oh my God, I saw you on this legitimate you could be, you could be super, I guess what I'm trying to say is you could be super famous in rock and roll world and then go to uh, Walgreens and no one would recognize you. And then one day you, you go into Walgreens and everybody recognizes you. That's where it's weird. But by then you've already been famous for a while in rock world. So it doesn't necessarily feel different. It just feels stranger. But there was mm-hmm. no kind of like moment like, oh, I've, I've arrived. What about you, Jimmy? Yeah, I think the same. I think it's hard to be objective in the moment, right? I mean, you just, when you're in it and it's all encompassing, it's like 360 degrees, it's hard to get that vantage point that allows you to see kind of the real ascension of things. But yeah, I mean, there are a few times. I remember driving down uh, in Chicago, there used to be a giant Tower Records on Ohio Street um, when you got off the highway. And I remember driving by uh, with a friend and our our faces were painted on the side of the building and like eight each head was about eight feet tall and I remember thinking like holy shit because I I didn't see it of course I was driving and my friend was like oh my god you're on the side of that building <laughs> like what because <laughs> I mean I didn't go downtown much back then so it would kind of freak me out but I, I still remember that but like Billy said it's such a slow process and and there's so much normalization that you kind of force on yourself in the journey it never really hits you like a ton of bricks. I mean, of course there's moments like playing Reading Festival or those types of things where you can kind of, you know, you, you have those pinch yourself moments, but there's no like tidal wave of like, holy cow, I'm super famous right now. I think the Simpsons were probably the thing that kind of put us <laughs> put us on the map, unfortunately, <laughs> the most. I mean, it would be like, you know, you play this great show, you play this great show and you come off stage and you're feeling all good about yourself. And then somebody would be like, what was it like being on The Simpsons? <laughs> all right. See you later. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm trying to say is the things that the things that matter to us, us don't necessarily matter to the general public. The stuff the general public remembers is Saturday Night Live, Simpsons, cover Rolling Stone. But for you, it's the first time you sell out a club or. Yeah. 
you know, th those types of things. Then you start thinking like, well, hey, the band that I like, they sold this place out too. So now we're as big as that band. And so that by the time you get there, it's kind of like you've, you've kind of normalized it. It's, hard, it's really hard to explain because it's so disorienting and everyone around you pretends like they know what they're doing when they don't, um, which is part of the con game of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. So um, you, you ultimately come to the realization that everyone's just making it up as they go along and really nobody knows what it, no, really, really nobody in the music business can tell you why someone gets popular or famous or successful, but they all want, they all want to pretend they know after the artist is successful. So you're surrounded by all these people who pretend <laughs> right. they know more than you do, but somehow you figured out something they couldn't figure out. And then the minute you figure it out, they start acting like they were the ones that figured it out for you. <laughs> it's such a weird, weird process. I, I, it's, almost un, 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 it's almost impossible to explain what a strange journey it is. Epic, epic. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right, and we have one more here for you guys. Um, Steph is here from Cleaner Systems, a huge supporter of our radio station. So thank you guys for that, but also a massive fan of you guys. So Steph, go for it. Hi guys, hey, pleasure to see you and thank you so much for doing this. Lifelong fans, uh, Jimmy, I don't know what age you are, but I know Billy and myself are the same age. My daughter's 28 and yours are, your children are very young, which nothing to do with my question. I'm a huge fan of, <laughs> of, uh, of, of the pumpkins. I just, I, I don't know how you do it at that age with my being 28. Neither here nor there, but uh, when I talk about being one of my favorite bands, I don't know if we can see that. It's kind of, kind of blurry. Zero. So it's, it's made the arm of fame here with all my favorite bands. You are truly my favorite band of all time. And listening to Howard last week, when you were on Howard, uh, you had mentioned that one of your main influences was Black Sabbath, which was a little surprising to me. Can you tell me about that and your other influences throughout your career that helped shape your sound? Sure. Um, well, I had an uncle, um, he unfortunately passed away very young, but he was a drummer. And uh, my grandmother, his mother, would let me play his stereo. And he was into progressive music. So, you know, his record stack had Yes albums and and uh, Jethro Tull and Queen and also um, Black Sabbath. So when I was eight years old, um, you know, having no idea what I was putting on, I put on the Black Sabbath album, Master of Reality. Um, and started with, uh, you know, the famous song Sweet Leaf, which starts with, I think it's Ozzy or some, one of the guys coughing. And I just, that sound uh, stuck with me, you know, at, at that age. It was like, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. My father was a musician, so I, I was certainly used to listening to music, but it was something about the sound of Black Sabbath that really appealed to me. And if you really listen to what people call the classic Smashing Pumpkin sound, it's basically just us doing Black Sabbath, big, big, big stereo guitars and the, the voice up the middle double track. Um, as far as our influences, I loop and Jimmy on this. I mean, one of the things uh, that connected Jimmy and I very early on is we realized we'd listen to a lot of the same music, um, Deep Purple, uh, Rush. Um, and those were, those were influences. It's hard to explain simply, but Jimmy, when I met Jimmy, Jimmy didn't know anything about alternative music. So I'd been in alternative music for a few years. I had the band in St. Pete, like we talked about. And, and I was playing very much like, it's called like kind of a UK based kind of alternative music, like The Cure or Sisters of Mercy or Susie and the Banshees, which, you know, as you can imagine in 1985 America, there weren't a lot of bands playing that style. So not only were we playing it poorly, but like nobody understood what we were trying to do. 
And occasionally I would put in some rock influences, um, you know, Led Zeppelin-ish influences, but like people didn't already like what I was doing and they certainly didn't like that I was playing the heavier version of what that became. So then when I met Jimmy, the band was, the band had already been together for about six months with uh, James and Darcy. And we were very much in the model of a kind of a typical goth, simple band with playing with drum machine. So when Jimmy and I first connected on kind of rock stuff, I realized that Jimmy could play all that stuff. And so it was like, it kind of rekindled my idea of like, well, maybe if I put these influences together with the heavier influence. And so somehow, somehow it was that merger of Black Sabbath and The Cure or Susie and the Banshees, Sisters of Mercy and, and Deep Purple that sort of became like what became our first and second album sort of approaches. And uh, Jimmy can kind of pick that up from the other end because I think it was a bit strange for him because <clears throat> we, we, we connected on all the kind of the heavy metal stuff, rock stuff, but he didn't know anything about the alternative stuff that I was citing. Yeah, I kind of backed into uh, Joy Division and Love and Rockets and those types of bands um, just to kind of get an idea of what the languaging uh, was like. But yeah, when I joined the band, I, I knew nothing about alternative rock um, and was really just heavily, well, I was playing in a show band at the time, but just my listening was heavily rooted in like a lot of progressive uh, jazz, a lot of the stuff, uh, progressive rock stuff that we talked about. Um, but yeah, Billy and I connected on, I mean, he was a, a Mahavishnu orchestra fan. I mean, there was a lot of progressive stuff that we, that we connected on that we were able to foment uh, a pretty serious languaging right off the bat. And I was, I was never the biggest Sabbath fan um, just because I wasn't a real big Bill Ward fan until, until later and, and another band that I kind of backed into. And now I'm, now I'm a massive fan um, because I realized, you know, in my own journey, how hard it is to, to have an identity like that in a band. Um, so regardless of the technical proficiency of somebody like that, the fact that they have such a strong identity in a band, and when you hear that band without them, it sounds completely different. You know, that's a, that's a hallmark of somebody who's got a, an extreme, uh, ex extreme amount of talent. Um, so yeah, kind of the same. I mean, my influences were, you know, Deep Purple, Rush, The Who, uh, but also, you know, Elvin Jones, Tony Williams, a lot of the jazz greats. My dad played clarinet. So, um, <clears throat> you know, it was just kind of a unique, I think what gave us a unique, one of the things that gave us a unique sound was the different, the different uh, vantage points that all the members were coming from. Um, and when you put it together, you got something that was truly unique and kind of indigenous to the band. So it all started with Black Sabbath. <laughs> that's, that's that's amazing all the bands you named i mean same stuff i grew up with in this room alone you we've probably seen you guys play 50 60 times wow. 20, 25 <laughs> times for me alone over the years but uh yeah huge huge fans and we appreciate you guys doing this so much and we hope you make it back here soon i'll tell you since since we're talking about sabbath i'll tell you one quick funny story um there was this point somewhere in the in the early 2000s I can't remember it was like Sabbath was doing some kind of greatest hits record or something and Sharon Osbourne called me and said for some reason Geezer can't play bass on this stuff but we you want to come to the studio and play bass and I was like oh no I don't <laughs> as much as I love Black Sabbath that seems like a, that seems like a setup for me to fail like because I'm not really a bass player and 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 the Sabbath style is very very busy, and I thought great I'll 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 live out my dream by playing in Black Sabbath for this recording and then get crucified by the press for ruining Black Sabbath. So I actually said no to that, 
but through that conversation, I, I was invited down. They were mixing a live album or something like that. Um, and so I went in the studio and, and at some point I was, Tony was on one side and I'd worked with Tony a little bit on his solo album. So I already knew him a bit. And Ozzy was on my other side and I'm sitting between my two of my heroes listening to live Black Sabbath mixes that they were trying to approve for a live Sabbath album that they eventually put out. And I thought, if you could tell that eight-year-old kid that someday I'd be sitting between these two guys listening to their music, it was like, you, that's what I'm talking about, like fame. It's like, at what point do you graduate into that class where you get to hang out with your heroes and talk about, you know, it's like, like sometimes people ask about working with Tommy Lee and I say, the great thing about Tommy Lee is you get to hear all the stories that aren't in the book, you know? <laughs> like, you know, you, you have these moments and, and, and Jimmy's had them too, you know, where you, you're hanging out with your, your peers, your heroes, and you know, you're in this weird club and uh, you get to hear the stories and, and uh, you get to ask the questions. Um, like one time I was standing with um, Nick Mason at Pink Floyd. We met Nick in 1996 on a racetrack actually. And so I'm standing there, this is about five years ago and we're taking, somebody's taking some pictures of us together and the guy says, hey, and you know, cause we're doing like the formal, like, you know, arms around each other picture. And the guy says, can you guys just talk? So it looks more natural to take the pictures. And so, you know, like I said, I, I know Nick a little bit and I'm standing in front of drummer Pink Floyd, one of the greatest bands of all time, certainly one of my favorite bands. And I don't know what to ask him. So I go, what ride symbol did you play on Dark Side of the Moon? <laughs> because I thought, I thought if there's any chance I can ask him a really nerdy musician question, this is the time. And he told me the symbol and he told me how he played on in all these records and what he loved about the symbol. And it's like, who gets a chance to ask their heroes like the super nerd musical question? So, um, and I know Jimmy's had those experiences. Any anything that sticks sticks out for you, Jimmy? Oh God! I mean, I remember getting invited to a. Um, there used to be this Monday night uh, men's meeting in in Los Angeles, which was just a bunch of musicians that would get together and kind of hang out and talk. And uh, my friend Dallas Taylor invited me to it who was the drummer for Crosby, Stills and Ashton Young. And he kept saying, we're going over to my friend Richard's house to hang out and, and hang out with some friends. So we start driving down Sunset into Bel Air and we get to this huge gate and it opens up. And I look and there's this woman in the driveway and it looks a lot like Barbara Bach, but I didn't really know much about Barbara Bach other than I'd seen her picture a few times. And then we go knock on the door and it's Ringo Starr opens the door. And we go inside and it's Ringo Starr, Harry Nilsson, uh, uh, Stephen Stills, David Crosby, Steven Tyler. <laughs> and it was just this mon Monday night thing that these guys did to just talk in like a, in a private environment where everybody could just kind of talk openly. And I was kind of the young, you know, I was, it was probably 1993, 1992. And I was just, gobsmacked by the, the amount of fame in the room but yeah it was really an incredible experience to be welcomed into that kind of arena with those people and all of them just in, incredibly grateful and gracious uh gentlemen back to us well the clean earthlings that's what we call ourselves we thank you so much i mean <laughs> i love i love the new album and i love that it sounds nothing like 25 years ago it yeah. should always progress right yeah well thank you yeah it's funny because um you know here we are talking basically through the context of, of, of radio stations you know 
much of our success is based on our ability through the years to get played on radio. And what's funny is you, you, have, you have your Smashing Pumpkins fan who many of them sort of identify with the guitar based part of the band, which is fine. I mean, we love that stuff. But if you look at our history on radio, our history on radio is, is not always guitar based. Um, we had a lot of hit songs based on other types of styles, uh, acoustic and electronic. And, um, and I've been very open in talking about how it's been very difficult for us for the past few years when we make guitar-based music, the radio stations basically don't want to play those songs, um, either because to them it sounds old or it doesn't sound new. I know that sounds like the same thing, but it's actually two different things if you think about it. And so we decided to just make, let's make a real fresh album just to have fun and, and just try to rekindle our ability to make successful uh, music and then get played on the radio. And now that we're back there in that position and we're working with great stations like this, um, you know what I mean? It's, it's now, now we're in a position where we can, we can do everything we want to do again. And so we're working on a 33 song, uh, I guess you'd call it a triple album um, that basically encompasses all the band styles through the years, including, you know, super heavy guitar rock. Um, and right now I'm in the studio mixing Machina, um, you know, which is 20 years old. So, yeah, so it's, you know, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is the band's the band's history. And since you're a fan and you've been to so many shows, you know, the band's history is, 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 is more like a, is more like a zigzaggy line. Um, the media tries to tell fans that our history is sort of like one straight line and they decide, you know, um, they, they, they decide when the, where the line ends or something, but that's never been our, our situation. Um, and it's great fans like you that supported us that allowed us to take chances. And so we're happy. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I'm 53, Jimmy's north of 53. And uh, <laughs> it's amazing that we're still due here. West, due west. Due west, yeah. It's amazing that we're still here and talking to great people like you and, and people care. And so we're just happy and we appreciate you guys supporting us. I mean, it's, uh, we, it's not we complicated. Love it we love Thank it you. all and, and can't wait for the next one after this one. Still digesting Sear, but, you know, give me another month and I'll know it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a lot to digest. I think it's a, it's a lot even for us to digest. You know, there's so much music there. And I think for us as musicians, you know, there's when we make the album, there's kind of one journey. And then there was when we play the record. And unfortunately, because of COVID, we have, you know, right now we would probably be in rehearsal or be on tour somewhere playing these songs. So we haven't had the experience of actually playing the songs in a conventional setting, getting to see how people react, seeing which songs elevate and see which songs don't seem to do as well in a live setting which is also part of our journey. And that's obviously been taken away because of the COVID situation. So. <laughs> oh. Hopefully we can have you back at a show here in Tampa or in Jacksonville sooner rather than later. That would be. Uh, <laughs> I will, I will actually be in uh, the state of Florida for January and February getting out of the cold. So I'll be, I'll be near you soon. Oh, nice. <laughs> it was cold here this week, but cold by Florida standards. Yeah. So. Well, you guys, you guys call cool. <laughs> <laughs> your cold ain't this cold this this this, this cold <laughs> makes you mean and bitter <laughs> oh yeah no <laughs> well thank you uh jimmy and billy of smashing pumpkins for doing this um it was really incredible that we could do it for both 97x and x106.5 we love everything you're doing right now we are here for it um and thank you guys for for being such great fans and and wanting to be a part of it too so thank you and we'll we'll see you soon hopefully okay thanks everyone hope you okay. had fun Okay. Yeah, bye. bye, everybody.